So I started thinking, don't ask me how, like literally in 30 seconds, I had this idea popped in on my Nike had just come out with a new track shoe and it had this revolutionary cushioning system mm-hmm. called Air Soles. Yep. So I said, wow, Air Jordan, you know, flies through the air, cushions your feet. So I said, okay, I got it. We'll call it Air Jordan. David Falk is considered by many to be the third most powerful person in basketball, now behind David Stern and Adam Silver. On the show, we talk about what it was like to sign Michael Jordan, represent him in negotiations with the Chicago Bulls, Nike, McDonald's, and Gatorade, as well as how Falk and his team restructured many of the rules in the current NBA player handbook to prevent the cannibalization of player image likeness by the NBA. Falk's road to success in professional sports stemmed from a blue-collar upbringing where hard work and goal achievement sat at the forefront of his daily rituals. His mother instilled in him to, quote, always shoot for the stars and never settle for anything less. Welcome to an all-new episode of Suiting Up Podcast. This is a show where I delve into the stories of some of today's leading athletes, entrepreneurs, and entertainers. I'm your host, Paul Rabel. Enjoy my conversation with David Falk. We're here in uh, D.C., and um, I've, I've always wanted to meet you and spend time with you because of your experience in sports, representation, business, media, uh, and it just so happens our, our first time sitting together is uh, being recorded live, so it's, it's pretty exciting. But um, So let's start with uh, your childhood, because when we did exchange emails, um, you're a Long Island guy, went to Syracuse, you know lacrosse, so that was like an easy in for me. I was like, great, okay, so... I, <laughs> I can forego the, the, the pleading as to why uh, I want to get this meeting, but talk about your upbringing. So I was, I was born in Queens, New York, lived there until I was about eight. We moved out to Long Island to a little town called Seaford, which is best known as the second home of Jimmy Valvano. Mm-hmm. I went to school in Levittown, Long Island, uh, which was a community built, like a planned community built for returning GIs from the Korean War. The houses were $5,300. We didn't live in Levittown. We lived in Seaford, which was half a step up, but um, it was a very blue-collar area. Um, my dad was a butcher, never finished high school. My mom was a teacher with two master's degrees, very, very highly educated. Um, and uh, she was really my mentor growing up. You know, My mom was a, very oriented towards education. And in my life, I've tried to orient all my charitable activities to education to sort of honor my mom. Yeah. And, and you talk about her influence and the work ethic that she instilled in you that you carried on to your career. Well, if you look to your right, there's a little stone there. Uh, that a friend of mine had made for me that says, always shoot for the stars and never settle for second best. That was a mantra that she literally drilled into me from the time I was probably five years old. And so for all the sports writers and the commentators who think that I'm either arrogant or greedy or whatever, I've always just been trying to please my mom and her standards were impossibly high. And um, I think that's what made me who I am. What were some examples of, of growing up in that household? You mentioned your, your father was a butcher. Your mom spoke six languages fluently. Um, you know, we're so much a product of, of our families and I often talk about it with my brother, my, my father's discipline, hard work and humility. It's, it's almost, we, you know, we're lucky to, uh, adopt those characteristics, but were there other things that, that you would just see regularly that, that were so, um, almost became a personification of you today? Well, you know, I, I, what, from the time I was about nine years old, I used to work on and off at my dad's butcher shop doing all the worst menial jobs. He used to have to clean up the fat cans and scrape the butcher blocks and put the sawdust down. 
and I absolutely hated it. He worked with a bunch of, you know, blue collar, pretty redneck kind of guys. I was like 13, 14. By the time I got to 13, 14, I graduated to doing freezer wrapping. I put the radio on to listen to the Beach Boys or whatever, yeah. Four Seasons, and the guy said, turn that stuff off. You yeah, know? Yeah. They want to, you know. <laughs> I, so I hated the environment, and like it wasn't like I needed a lot of negative motivation to do well in school, but I think that really any doubts I had about the want to be in retail or work with my hands, by the time I got dealt with my dad, like... And so then I progressed from the butcher shop. I went to work at a restaurant, sort of a cafeteria-style restaurant. I was a busboy. I flipped hot dogs called Jolly Rogers. And I really enjoyed that. But, like, it's cement. I did. I worked at a soda warehouse, driving the forklift. I delivered soda around Long Island. And I knew I never wanted to be a manual worker. And at the same time, today, many years later, if I walk into the train station at Union Station, I know all the shoeshine guys and the porters. Like, yeah. I respect working people because that's – that was my pedigree. Yep. I didn't grow up in an affluent background, and I think America is composed of people who aren't hedge fund, you know, operators. They're they're working people. Yeah, in in, in the U.S., we often just romanticize the hedge fund workers or the first time entrepreneurs that build a unicorn business, and we all think, oh, that's what we want, or even the pro athletes. But they're not the foundation. The foundation of America are are working people, and. You know, I've been very fortunate to enjoy success and and do well financially, but I consider myself, you know, from the background I came from, I always consider myself a worker. Would that be advice that that you give or have for many people that are starting their careers? Make sure, even if you have the opportunity to start uh, with with a network or through your family at a high level, to to take a working class job. Uh, to learn what it's like to kind of roll your sleeves up, build relationships, and, and manually build something. Absolutely. And I think when you touch on the word relationships, I'm a relationship nut. Yeah. Like, I, I believe that relationships are the are the lubricant that makes business work. Hmm. And um, if you're in doubt, you know, you get a million proposals, you make a lot of proposals, you make presentations – and it's rare that you're going to blow somebody away in your presentation. So they look at what you've done and they listen to the, the concept. And if they like you and they trust you, they'll probably go with it. If they yeah. don't, they probably won't because they have so many other competing proposals. Don't you think that, I, from my experience, relationships are more powerful than the actual business sometimes? Because we'll have, and, and partially we think that sometimes we'll have a, a really good product with distribution ready to plug in with the brand. And then there's a relationship that precedes ours that may have not as great of a product, but they get the deal done because of that relationship. Absolutely. So um, I have a I'm involved with a startup uh, digital advertising company, which is currently called Consumable. Mm -hmm. And my partner, Mark Levin, who had founded the company, asked me to plug into some of the major content producers. And he already tried, so he gets to the engineering level. Mm -hmm. And it's not a knock on Mark. And the engineers are all nervous. This is new. They've never seen it before. And they want to. They have to recommend to the senior people whether to go with it. And they're nervous that there's something they haven't seen that's going to fail. So they say no. I call the chairman. I call the chairman of some very large company. I said, do me a favor. Just take a 30-minute presentation that's going to really – and we were 10 for 10. Yep. And we're all making a lot of money together. It would never have happened if the people at the top didn't have mm -hmm. a level of trust and respect. And I would never call them 
in the first place if it was something I really wasn't passionate about because you only have so many bites at the apple. And if you recommend something that's not, you yeah. know, going to be successful, they're going to, <laughs> they're not going to take your call the next time. Yeah. Yeah. There's a couple of things that, that I think of when you explain that one, the, the importance of mentors and advisors, which you talk often about on this show and, and how critical that actually is, um, to, to a piece of your personal development business, et cetera. But the other is, uh, that don't, don't, don't think that a request or a favor is a light ask, right? There, even if someone as powerful in sports as you are, you still know the, the impact of a referral or a reference point that you give to one of your peers. If it goes bad, that, that's a mirroring evidence of you. I mean, I, when I, the first time I met Kevin Plank at Under Armour, mm-hmm. we, have, we have some mutual friends, and I've had former colleagues that call Kevin Plank four days a week with the latest hot, you know, player or whatever. And I told him, look, that's not the way I am. If I call you, it's going to be something I really believe in. Um, I don't think I've asked him for three things yeah. in the seven or eight years I've known him. One of them, we recommended a guy was the national player of the year, uh, and it didn't work, and the guy didn't turn out to be as great a player as we thought. And I'm really sensitive to the next one, you know, the next yeah. time we ask. Because I really respect Kevin Plank, and you yeah. want him to feel that if you're going to make a recommendation, it's some, that's how Michael Jordan got to Nike. Yeah. It never would have worked if I didn't have an incredibly strong relationship with the head of marketing at Nike. And Michael didn't even want to – you know, I, I get amused by all the um, uh, stories that credit Sonny Vicaro was signing Michael Jordan. Yeah. Sonny Vicaro wasn't even in the room when we negotiated the contract. <laughs> um, and I have no doubt that he had some backroom – you know, recommendations to the executives at Nike, but like recommending the two-time player of the year is not exactly a, um, you know, a, a sleeper, right, <laughs> you know, right, a sleeper, right. you know, um, and, and I think Sonny has had a very powerful role in creating the whole AU network we have now, which I'm not a big fan of. Right. Um, but every time I read a story, I think, wow, if Sonny was so powerful, why was it that when Michael finished the Olympics in 1984, he didn't want to get on the plane and go to see Nike? Right. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. We, we find out a lot uh, from, from forums like these, too, that, that one, media typically has some type of angle of propaganda associated with it. But, but for many of the key decision makers, what actually happens behind the scenes oftentimes stays behind the scenes. And it's their level of humility that I imagine also you got from your folks growing up in a working class family that was instilled in you. Well, you know, that's an interesting balance when you use the word humility. In my business, I'm not a point guard. I'm a shooting guard. You know, my job is to go out and be a, a passionate advocate for my clients. Mm-hmm. It's not to be a laid back, you know, let the market come to you. Hmm. And, you know, when I was very young, in my late 20s, early 30s, I had a period of time where I was, the sun was shining on me between 1982, which is a long time ago, and 1986. We had James Worthy, who was the number one pick in the draft. Patrick Ewing was the number one pick in the draft. Michael Jordan. James Lofton is a Hall of Fame wide receiver. Chris Dolman is the fourth all-time sacker in football history. And Johnny Dawkins, who's our first Duke client. If I had stopped with just those six guys and John Thompson, I probably would have had, like, one of the greatest careers. And I went into that period of time, you know, pretty cocky. I was on my way up. I was trying to prove myself. Didn't have a lot of credentials. Uh, And after a while, you step back and say, wow. And you realize that you don't have to take credit for anything. If you do a good job your work will speak for you. And, hmm. you know, I was just telling a gentleman this morning I was meeting with that Michael's first year, 
the stuff we did was really transformative. Magic hadn't done it. Bird hadn't done it. Dr. J hadn't done it. There really wasn't a nationally marketed African-American team sport athlete other than maybe O.J. Simpson. Mm -hmm. And the first year, it was so startling that people were writing basically that I was like Dr. Frankenstein, that I created this guy in my lab, and I had invented this marketable, you know, phenom. By the time I could retire, people were writing, oh, my six-year-old daughter could have done. That's Michael Jordan. It's so easy. And <laughs> I would say in hindsight that I learned a lot of humility from Michael because he's inherently a very humble person. You know, on the court, he's not humble, but off the court, he's gracious and he's a great friend, very loyal person. And I realized that it doesn't matter whether it's 50-50, 90-10, 99-1, you're on the team with Michael Jordan, who's the greatest of all time. He is supportive. He's loyal. And just to be on the team, you've won the game. You don't have to tell people all the stuff you've done. Just yep. the fact that he trusts you with lifetime decisions is you can't pay for that. Yeah. How did you earn that trust? You mentioned all the, 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 the number one draft picks that you had before that. We, we talked about James Worthy and you cutting that deal with New Balance. It was the first of its kind of that size and magnitude. So I'm sure you were equipped with evidence as to why you were suitable to, to to represent Michael, but Michael comes from, you know, North Carolina, good ho working household family like you. I'm sure that there was some characteristics shared there, but what was that? What was that experience like and how do you earn his trust? Well, back in the day, and I think it was a great system at the top programs in the country, North Carolina with coach Smith, Duke with coach K mm -hmm. Georgetown with John Thompson, Indiana with Bob Knight, Kansas, um, coach Patino, those coaches, controlled where the players went and the, not because anybody paid them yeah. they, they wanted the best for their players and um at north carolina the two senior partners at ProServe, one who became the senior partner at octagon frank Craigle had played basketball at carolina had a very close relationship with dean smith and donald dell who was my boss and later my employee um you know the two of them had a very very strong level of respect from coach smith and so i would say that you know we we got michael jordan on the strengths of dean's recommendation not so much of me of donald but because we had had so many carolina guys mm -hmm. they all knew the drill the drill was you're going to meet this gentleman donald dell who's the head of the firm he's going to do your first deal and then they called him the ghost you'll never hear from him again you have this young bald guy who's going to take over and do everything for you and so michael probably knew more about us honestly, that we knew about him, and Coach Smith recommended us. And so I don't want to take any credit for, like, wowing him in the presentation. We had the best track record yeah. um, back then. and Agency representation was still in its fairly nascent stage, right? We were talking the, a little yes, bit about it with even. Yes, but the interesting part of it, and it's, it's why the business has become, it's devolved, is that mm. back until 1995, if you were an agent in basketball, you negotiated rookie contracts. So, for example, um, in 1977, a guy came out of Carolina named Tom Lagarde who busted up his knee right before the NCAA tournament. Mm -hmm. They lost to Marquette. Uh, he couldn't play for the first six months of a rookie year, and he got an incredible contract. He got more money than Walter Davis from Carolina, who was a way better player, got at number five. The next year, Phil Ford came out as the National Player of the Year. Best point Coach, Smith, Coach Smith didn't let, us, let him meet anyone but us. And huh. Phil and I are very, very close friends today. So from, so, so we had Phil in 78, Dudley Bradley in 79, who averaged four points a game at Carolina, went number 13 in the draft ahead of Spernarkel, who was the leading scorer in the ACC. Michael Corrin in 80, yeah. went number six. 
Alwood in 81, what, number four. And we had a great track record with these players. Um, and Coach Smith was a, ver- was a math major. Yep. It wasn't that he liked us. We were like the Warren Buffett of the industry by that time. Our performance record was stellar. And the coaches didn't pick us because they liked us. So they were doing us favors. They picked us because they wanted those players to do well on the level. That, that's how we got Patrick Ewing at Georgetown. Gotcha. And today, the problem with the business is you have a wage scale. And so if you're the number three pick in the draft, everyone's going to get you the same deal. The agents cannot differentiate themselves which has led to wholesale abuse of the of the rules. Yeah, and probably a lot of conversations that aren't confidently backed up in way of promises from agent to player because everyone wants the Michael Jordan shoe deal. <laughs> Am I going to be able to get it? And it's like, uh, see the simple we'll go an- after it. No, but the simple answer is no. You're not going to get you're it not. because there's only one Michael Jordan. Mm-hmm. And the problem in today's business, I feel like I'm a doctor. Okay, if you come to me and you say, like a, David, like a my, knee's, my knee's hurting, and I say, Paul, you need surgery, yep. and you say, well, I don't want to get surgery, I'm going to say, hey, no problem, quit telling me your knee's hurting. You know, if you want to come to me, I'll tell you what I think you need. You don't have to listen to me, but I have the most experience of anyone in the country. And so you look at situations where players go to the wrong teams, like every player wants to be the number one pick in the draft. Now, I was startled this year when Markel Fultz went to Philly, if I represented Markel Fultz, I wouldn't want him to go to Philly because they have Ben Simmons. Ben yeah. Simmons could be the next Magic Johnson. Mm-hmm. Now, if you're a point guard, why on earth do you want to go to a team that has an incredibly multi-talented six foot eight, six foot nine point guard at your position? You want to go to a team yep. where you can make where you could be that guy. Yeah, and it's not you could push a button and make that happen. But like when Evan Turner came out of Ohio State in 2010 as the National Player of the Year, the Wizards had the number one pick. We didn't let him work out for the Wizards because they wouldn't have picked him anyway. Yep. But we didn't think it was a good environment for him. It wasn't just based on the players they had. We didn't think it was the most productive environment. And that's your job is to exercise judgment. It's not to pander to an athlete's ego and tell what you think he wants to hear. He has all his boys doing that for free. Yep. He's paying you for your expertise to try to figure out. And so this year, Danielle, my partner, rep- is the first woman in years to represent a player. She's the only agent in America, only female agent that actually has a client. Mm-hmm. And she represented the guy who became the rookie of the year, Malcolm Brogdon. He ended up in Milwaukee. We picked Milwaukee because we thought that that was a team that he could make an immediate impact on. And he became a starter around January. Had he gone the first round, number 20, and stroked his ego, he, he might be in the D-League. Yeah. And so you have to have a feel, as a, based on your experience, of what environments – it's like relationships. You talked about yep. relationships. What environment is going to be the most productive environment for your client? Not – you know he wants to go as high as he can go in the draft. A kid came out this year, a local player, Josh Hart. Mm-hmm. Uh, his mom is a waitress at my golf club. Pat Hart, lovely people. And we met him. We told him to go back to school at the end of his junior year. And we told his parents the best thing he could do is be in the first 10 picks in the second round. You don't want to be in the last 10 picks of the first round because those are all the good teams. Hmm. So he goes 30 to the Lakers. Oh, makes sense. And I'm sure they were all thrilled he went in the first round. And he has to be playing a guy behind a guy named Lonzo Ball. Yeah. Now, I love Josh Hart. He's a great kid. But you don't want to be a rookie playing behind another rookie who's going to be a you know, potential breakthrough player, um, it's just not going to advance your career. And so those are the kinds of – and you have to have the confidence as an advisor 
to tell your client something you know they don't you know they doesn't want to hear that you know he doesn't want to go in the second round but long term it's way better off he'll be way better off because he's going to play he got one pick later in my opinion you know he'd likely be on a team a weaker team where he's going to make an impact and stay in the league that that transparency and honesty is is i think what lacks not only in in the sports agency business um and it could be entertainment representation or just business in general because there's this notion that that you know the agent or the management team is working for the athlete and that you know we need to tell her or him what they want to hear and if if there's a problem let's figure it out internally and solve it but that uh, that ability to be very honest, confident um, with your ally, with your athlete is uh, I got to imagine was was a, a big differentiator for you over time, and probably again came from uh, your origin story of growing up and 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 seeing how you would interact with your folks. Well, it's like you know if you're a team and you're trying out a player in any sport, you go to the football combine, basketball. You want to know what the players could do in crunch time. You know, mm-hmm. when, when the crunch is on, how is he going to respond? And I always wanted my clients to know, yeah, when you go number one in the draft, wow, that's the good times. What happens when you get cut or you get waived, you get traded to a bad team? Are you going to roll up your sleeves? And the problem for me at, today, after 43 years in the business, and my partner reminds me this weekly, is that it's extremely difficult because of the cultural change of the players they're so spoiled today hmm. coming up through the system. So we met a, play, a local player who's a terrific talent locally named Victor Oladipo. He was yep. the number two pick of the draft. Guy. And he fired his agent. We go to meet him in Florida. He met about five or six different groups. We got the feeling that his sister and his mom really liked us. Um, ten minutes into the meeting, he says to me, I don't know what spurred it. He said to me, Mr. Falk, you have to understand, I'm a great player. And I looked at him and said, Victor, you're a great talent. You need a person like me that understands what it takes to go from being a great talent to being a great player. You've never made the All-Star team. You can't say you're a great player in the NBA if you never made the All-Star team. The minute I said that, I could have walked out the door. The meeting was over. He was really offended. I wasn't trying to offend him. I wasn't trying to be a tough guy. I wanted him to know that if he picked us, we would never lie to him. We would never tell him something that he wanted to hear if it wasn't in his best interest. Now, I think the guy's got an amazing workout. I think he's having a terrific season this year, and I really liked him. But I didn't want him to think that was just another guy that was going to stroke him because that's not – my experience is the the greatest players that I've worked for, whether it's Michael, Patrick Ewing, Elton Brand, Coach K, John Thompson, they demand – they'll challenge you – to tell them the truth in the toughest environments and they will only respect you if you have the confidence and the integrity to tell them what you really think if you just if you just yesing them they're going to fire you and go on to the next person buying glasses can be expensive annoying and overwhelming Q. Warby Parker. The company was founded with a rebellious spirit and a lofty goal, which was to create boutique quality eyewear at a revolutionary price point. And they did just that. Example, their prescription glasses start at 95 bucks. Personally, I think their vibe and aesthetic is vintage inspired with a contemporary twist. It's how I frame my outfits, or at least I think I do. All of my Warby Parkers have been custom fit for me with anti-reflective polycarbonate prescription lenses. All orders for you will include frames, lenses, and coatings. 
You can order five pairs of glasses online and have them shipped directly to your home or office. Then you'll have five days to try them on and show them to friends and family for an honest opinion on what looks best. Now, here's my student up podcast deal. It's 100% free and really easy when you find a pair of glasses you like. So you can go to warbyparker.com forward slash Rabel and order your favorite pair right now. They'll even call your doctor if you don't have your prescription handy. Go to warbyparker.com. That's W-A-R-B-Y parker.com forward slash Rabel and get started with a free home try-on. And after you do so, place your home try-on order. Make sure to download the Warby Parker app from the iTunes App Store. They built this awesome home try-on companion feature, which allows you to quickly take photos wearing all the frames, stitch it into a video, and share it with friends and family to help you pick a winner. Get the best eyewear and look your best self today at warbyparker.com forward slash Rabel. Mike Maples, who is a famous Silicon Valley investor, he talks about looking for founders to invest in who he would want to be in trouble with. In the foxhole. And, yep, exactly. And, and that, like, just like businesses or athletes with injuries or get cut or get traded to a team they don't want to be on, you know, those are the moments where, where meaningful properties, meaningful relationships are actually built. And you want to try to identify those people when you either sign them or if you're going to invest in them or work with them that, that you would actually enjoy going through the hard times with. Absolutely. I mean, I've said many times, I use the analogy, if I were on the Titanic and they announced you just hit the iceberg, they're lowering the lifeboats. The first guy on my lifeboat is John Thompson, hmm. who has He's been great. a lifelong friend. And I know that if I'm on his boat, we're going to be rowing together. There are other people you want to, you know, when they panic and it's cold and, you know, they're not sure you're going to make it to shore. Are they going to really be with you? And you want to know in crunch time. And he's a very demanding person, but he's been an amazing friend. And I know that he has my back. You mentioned Donald Dell, who was the, the owner and founder of ProServe. And, and that wasn't an easy job to get. You were knocking on his door. It wasn't door an easy job for me. Calling. And, <laughs> and so talk us through, talk us through that process. And, and first, like how you said, okay, I want to get into sports. Here's this guy I need to get in touch with. This is what I'm going to do. Okay. So I, when I was in college, the very first day I showed up at Syracuse, I was on a, a very small dorm floor with the two-star recruits on the fr- where freshmen couldn't play varsity. And from literally from day one, we became great friends. Greg the Kid Coles, who was the number six scorer in the country in my class, sort of like a Steve Kerr type, and Paul Petrowski from Utica, New York. And we're really good friends to this day. And I had this – I always wanted to go to law school. I always wanted to be a lawyer. I don't know why. Mm-hmm. Um, sort of a romantic notion. I never wanted to be an astronaut or, you know yeah. – baseball player uh, I knew I couldn't be a baseball player and so I always had this desire like as I got towards graduation that I would help these guys if they went pro and sure enough Greg got drafted in the ABA and he ended up playing in Europe and by the time I was a senior I recognized what most young agents have no clue today I didn't know what I was doing I didn't know how to do it and so I went to law school and when I got to law school here at GW I started doing some networking or this is long before LinkedIn and Facebook yeah. oh yeah um, and I met a gentleman in Boston, was the first guy by name, Phil McLaughlin, uh-huh. who worked for the Boston company. He represented a lot of the Celtics managing their money. He hooked me up with Larry Fleischer, who was the head of the NBA Player Association. And the business was so nascent back then, Paul, that all these guys were basically single shop. They didn't have big – this wasn't a ProServe or an IMG or an Octagon or a Wasserman today or a CAA. These were guys who worked alone. 
and they weren't hiring anybody. So he said, well, you should meet the Hamilton Carruthers, who's, who was Paul Tagliabue's boss at Covington, mm-hmm. who was the head lawyer for the NFL. And he said, you need to meet the head of the baseball people at Arnold and Porter. And so being in Washington, eventually they said, if you want to be an athlete, you should meet Donald Dell. And so middle of my second year of school, I tried to meet Donald Dell, and I called him dozens of times. And he was either at lunch or he was in a meeting with a client or he was traveling or he was dictating to a set. No matter what, when I called. And one day after months of this, you know, this isn't like the president. It's just a business guy. <laughs> and I know I was a nobody, but I, I really, I guess it hit my competitive nerve. So I rarely went to the library at law school, but I went to the library and I had a bunch of quarters for the payphone. I called him like every 10 minutes until he ran out of all excuses. He finally granted me an interview, and he kept me waiting three and a half hours, which is his trademark. He was, Donald had no conception of time. Hmm. And he calls me in his office and basically tells me, like, they weren't hiring, and they clearly weren't hiring people of my pedigree who went to Syracuse GW. He had gone to Virginia, you know, another guy went to Dartmouth, one guy went to Yale. And I said, look, I'll work for free. I really, this is something I really want. Hmm. And I guess he thought that was a pretty attractive offer. And so, uh, so at the end of my second year of school, I got married on a on uh, June 2nd, and a week before I started, they gave me a key. It said, come in any time you want. And I had a full-time job at a big law firm here in Washington called Sidley and Austin. And when I got done at 6 o'clock with my job, I'd walk across the street to ProServe and work from like 6 to 11. I did that the whole summer. And then he hired me as a, um, a part-time clerk at, for my third year. And I knew it was my opening, so I, I basically worked full-time, worked about 80 hours a week, and I was a full-time student. And they didn't hire me till about a week after graduation. And I learned later, which is sort of chilling, that I had made such a great impression that they were trying to hire what I would call like a pretty boy from Princeton. You know, a typical Ivy League guy, played tennis, and, uh, and they, by the time they offered him the job, he had already accepted a job in New Jersey. Hmm. And Thank God he turned it down. I probably would have been doing something else. Um, and so I went to work uh, in 1974, when I graduated in 75, um, for $13,000 a year. I was making less than the secretaries. Yeah. And I was, like, stupefied. I mean, I was struggling to make ends meet with my wife. But um, And about a year in, the gentleman who was ahead of me named Michael Cardozo left to run the state of Connecticut for Jimmy Carter in the presidential election. It was the only eastern state that Carter lost, and to reward him for, and I love Mike Cardozo, yeah. <laughs> he basically taught me the business, and to reward Mike for the great job he did in Connecticut, he got hired as one of the four counsels for the president, so Donald was in a panic, and he said, okay, here's 20 clients, you got to manage these guys, they were basketball players, mm-hmm. tennis players, and I was 24 years old, 25 years old, and I was like, indoctrination by fire. Yeah, and you just, you had some type of foresight that sports, and, and business and sports marketing hadn't quite gotten to a level where you where you thought it could could be, and and you used your first group of of athletes to try and build momentum. Then Michael came along and you said, "Let's go." Let's I would go say what happened was it, during my part time, my eighteen months part time, what before I graduated, they basically gave me an assignment which today you probably do it like in an hour because it's all computerized. Right. They said take every contract in the company, every playing contract, every marketing endorsement contract, every club deal for the tennis pros, and summarize it. 
So by the time I got done with that project, I really had a pretty good feel for the market. It was a great education for me. And it wasn't that I understood at 25 where the thing was going. I didn't yet. But over the next four or five years, it was like an apprentice. I was like an apprentice. I went to every meeting with Donald. I was his chief of staff. Hmm. I answered his letters. And I'm a pretty creative guy. Donald's more of a mechanic. Yep. And Donald would... If Donald had the leverage, he would strangle you. But if he didn't, he wasn't creative enough to come up with a with a solution. And so, like, I, I just watched I watched how he operated, and I was very grateful. I'll always be grateful to him for starting me out. You know, we did, I ended up going on my own because I felt he didn't do what he should have done to keep me. Um, but we have a difference of opinion on that. Yeah. And um, but I, I watched the things he did, and I wanted to do it my own way. I didn't want to be a bully in negotiations. I wanted to. I wanted to find a creative way to convince someone this is a great deal. And I actually learned a lot by doing the opposite of what he was doing. He, Donald didn't spend a lot of time in preparation. I was a nut about practice. When I met Michael and he told people, you know, I practice as hard as I play. How could you play hard if you don't practice hard? That really resonated with me hmm. because that's, that's what I felt I needed to do. Maybe I wasn't talented enough or smart enough or yep. quick enough. I always wanted to feel that no one was going to prepare more than I did. I knew every contract in the league in my head. And so by the time I was 30, I had been in the business six years. I really felt confident that I knew the rules better than anybody. I knew the contracts. And I started doing it on my own, you know, in my 30s. So by the time Michael came along, I'd been a junior agent for superstars like Arthur Ashe and Stan Smith in tennis. I worked for John Lucas and Phil Ford. You know, I work for, you know, some football clients. I really felt confident, you know, that, that I could do the job. And when you have Michael Jordan and you sit down and you say, okay, open canvas, what, like, what was the environment like for some of those first meetings? I, I think I romanticize that, like, you were sitting in an empty gym watching him practice and he would come over and you'd talk shop and here's how we're going to approach the, the, your first shoe deal, which in our business we call the endemic deal. Right, All the best athletes typically get them, but you want to position them with a company that can be strategic with you, can dedicate marketing dollars to you, and in this case, create the, the shoe that has changed the industry. But what were some of those first moments like? Well, let me paint, let me paint the landscape. Okay. It wasn't endemic in 1984. Magic Johnson didn't have his own shoe. Larry Bird didn't have his own shoe. Kareem didn't have his own shoe. Yep. No one had their own shoe in basketball. They had it in tennis. It was it was part and parcel. Arthur had one. Stan had one. I mean, most of our top tennis clients had their own products. But in basketball and football, the only guy who had it was O.J. Simpson. It was, was spot built. And like a custom shoe. His own okay, a, a yeah. autograph shoe. Okay, gotcha. Signature shoe. Yeah. And so... What had happened in 82, as I went through my own progression, James Worthy became a historical anomaly. He was the only player in the history of the NBA before or since who was the number one player in the draft, drafted by a team that had just won the championship. And so we th I thought, as a person with an economics background, long before analytics came along, mm -hmm. they had a very unique economic value. And so when the shoot situation came. I'll never forget, there was a, there was a guy named York Larice, who was a former Carolina basketball player who worked at Puma. Mm -hmm. And he offered James $55,000 directly to Coach Smith. Yeah. And Coach Smith asked us, gosh, like, why do we need to hire you? James has been offered $55,000. That was an enormous amount of money for a rookie back then. Hmm. And I said, well, just give us a shot. And I ended up negotiating the largest deal in NBA history for James as a rookie on a team with Magic Johnson and Kareem. He got 150000 a year 
for eight years, which yeah. is enormous back then. When Michael came along two years later, I sort of invoked the famous quote from from Bobby Kennedy, or, you know, ask not what, you know, America could do for you, but what you could do for America. So I went to all the companies and I said, look, we're not going to make any offers. This is Michael Jordan. He's the two-time player of the year, the star of the Olympics. If you want him, you have to make offers to us. And what I want is I want to know, what will you do to market Michael Jordan? They said, we'll do the same, you know, yeah. converse to us. We'll treat him just like, you know, Isaiah and Larry Bird. And Nike, which was a tiny company back then that I'd gotten close with the head of marketing, Rob Strasser, um, he, I knew they wanted him. Michael didn't even want to meet Nike. He didn't know anything about Nike. He wanted to go with Adidas. He wanted Adidas. And we represented the I owner he of Adidas. Converse. He wanted Adidas. No, he hated Converse. He hated Converse. <laughs> uh, he wore Nike whenever he could. But the owner, of, the owner of Adidas, Horst Stossler, had died, and the company was a little bit in disarray. And so I told Strasser, if you want to sign Michael Jordan, you know, I want him to be treated like a tennis player. I want his own line of products, clothes and shoes, with his name on it. And he thought about it. I've told the story a million times. Um, and Sonny Vaccaro, if you're listening, I want you to pick up on this. <laughs> and, and, uh, and he said, look, David, we may be willing to do that. What do you want to call it? What do you want to call the line? I looked at him like he was like on crack. And I said, Rob, I want to call it Michael Jordan. It's a signature line. His name is Michael Jordan. And he said, David, you don't understand, like, the designer age in America has run its course. The public is fed up with designers like Diane von Furstenberg or Oleg Cassini, Ralph Lauren. Bill Blah, yeah. slapping labels on everything from beach chairs to sunglasses to cars. There's no credibility in a 21-year-old athlete sitting in his apartment designing shoes. No one's going to believe Michael Jordan is designing shoes. So we're not going to call it Michael Jordan. So we may be willing to do a line, but you have to come up with a name, and it can't be Michael Jordan. And I, I'm sitting there in my office on a Saturday afternoon in August in Washington, sweating, <laughs> sweating, no air conditioning, <laughs> and I want to strangle my friend Rob. Like yeah. this like the most unreasonable re demand I've ever heard from a person in corporate America. So I started thinking, and don't ask me how it, like literally in 30 seconds, I had this idea popped in on my Nike had just come out with a new track shoe and it had this revolutionary cushioning system mm -hmm. called air soles. Yep. So I said, wow, air Jordan, you know, flies through the air, cushions your feet. So I said, okay, I got it. We'll call it air Jordan. And the rest was history. Like it took 30 seconds. Now, Michael to this day will say it was like the best idea I've ever had and the last best idea. I've ever had. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so Michael then, uh, is in this board meeting, this board room, or pr presentation? Well, first, first I have to get him on the plane. So yeah. Michael just finishes the Olympics. Yeah. He had a long season. And Bobby Knight was coaching Carolina. Them. Coach Knight is a very demanding coach. Yeah. He was the superstar of the Olympics. And that's when Coach Knight said, this guy is the is best the athlete I've ever seen. Basketball player, easy. Athlete, ever He dominated seen. the Olympics with Patrick Ewing and all these superstars. And he dominated the international players. And, you know, you talk about the aha moment in your life. So to answer your question in a long-winded way, so I go down to Carolina to make a presentation to Michael and his parents of what my vision was. And you have to understand, no athlete in basketball had been marketed at all. Mm -hmm. Magic Johnson had one national deal with 7-Up for one year. That was it. Yeah. Bird had none. And um, so my idea, having 
been successful at the Olympics was to tie him to All-American Company. He was an All-American. He was a he was the boy next door. Like all two, blue chip. Two-parent yeah. family, great parents. His parents were amazing people. He had four siblings. He was good-looking. And I said, we're going to do three companies to start. We're going to do a shoe deal and a ball deal. And then we're going to do Chevrolet, Coca-Cola, and McDonald's. It doesn't get any more All-American than that. And so... So we get into the shoe deal, and his parents were like, what are you looking for? And I said, well, in an ideal world, I don't know if we can get it. We'd like to have our own line of products. I said, there's really two ways to go. We can, one way, we could split everything up and do one deal for shoes, a separate deal for clothes, a separate deal for hats, backpacks, sweatbands, all the accessories. Or we could put it all together. And you go, which is better? And I said, well, in the short term, it's better to split it all up because you get much bigger guarantees from mm-hmm. each company. But in the long term, if you could possibly create a brand, and no player had a brand in basketball, then you'll down the road make more money. I would like to try to do what they, a tennis player or golfer would do, like an Arnold Palmer or yep. Jack Nicholas, and try to create a brand. Um, and so I said, I think the best company to do that that needs you the most to be the most aggressive is Nike. And Michael looked at me and said, David, Nike. You said, I don't even know what Nike is. I want to be with Adidas. I said, I know, Michael, but Horst Dosser has died. And they're really in disarray. He said, I don't care, Adidas. So he would not agree to even visit Nike. I couldn't get him to go on the plane now. I just, we just signed the player. And it's my very first recommendation. And he's basically turning me down flat that he wouldn't even listen. And I went to his parents and I said, look, if we're going to work together and be successful, I don't care if he chooses Nike, but you have to take a campus visit. It's like getting co- recruited by colleges. You say, I don't want to go to Carolina or I don't want to go to Duke Just or come. Kentucky. Yep. And the parents are like, don't worry, he'll be on the plane. So they forced him to get on the plane. And we go out there and he spent hours at Nike, never cracked a smile. And I knew he was hating it. And I, I knew he was going to curse me out when it's over. So we finally... and. Th- they had created an early music video for him. They took a lot of clips from Carolina and the Olympics, and they put it to all these songs with Jump in them, like Jump by Van Halen, Jump by the Pointer Sisters, I Wear My Sunglasses at Night. It was, it was unbelievable. Yeah. Strasser couldn't get the video to start. He was the head of marketing. <laughs> and he's sitting there, like, sweating like in a movie, <laughs> you know, for like 10 minutes. Jordan's not happy. <laughs> and he's just, Michael's sitting there, and I said, oh, God, could just be any worse if we scripted it? And finally... Um, the funny scene in the meeting was uh, Knight, Phil Knight finally comes into, we moved to the conference room, yeah. and Strasser's sort of presenting their ideas, and he know that Michael loved cars. Michael's a car nut. Mm. And so at the, middle, at the end of his presentation, he reaches into his breast pocket. He said, if you sign with Nike, and he pulls out, Phil Knight literally is holding his heart. He thinks he's going to give him like the keys to a Mercedes, yeah. and he pulls out these two little model cars, which is hilarious. <laughs> so we go to dinner. And the dinner finally ends. They're about to fly home. And I sort of timidly went up to Michael and I said, like, so what do you think? And he goes, I don't want to go anyplace else. Really? I said, what? He said, no, that was amazing. I said, it was? He said, yeah. And I realized back then, my first time, this guy is really smart. He's like a great poker player. He didn't reveal his emotions. He didn't show for an instant that he was interested. And... And so then we went to the last meeting. He didn't go. I took his father to Converse. Converse was the NBA official shoe. They had the Fisher shoe of the Olympics that Michael played in. And, uh, and they had everybody. They had Magic, Isaiah, Bernard King, Isaiah Thomas, everybody. And they told him, 
so his father was at the meeting, James, who's a really great guy. And he said, uh, well, do you have any new creative ideas? And they looked at him like he was crazy. They said, we're going to treat him just like everybody else, which is the polar opposite of what we're looking for. So, you know, we saw with Nike and the rest was history. But if anybody thinks that it was a slam dunk, I couldn't even get him to get on the damn plane. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's unbelievable. What about what about uh, your friends over at New Balance who you had just previously done a successful deal with? They weren't like, why Nike? Because you wanted – is it similar to what you were talking about with draft picks and yes. saying, hey, we already have Worthy over here. We don't want to put Jordan behind Worthy. You know, it's interesting. If, you, if I can give you like a, a current 2017 overview, the shoe companies spent enormous amounts of money on youth basketball enormous mm-hmm. AU, and they do that to try to build loyalty yep. with the young players so if i can give you like a very ancient history like the rhyme of the ancient mariner so in 1982 when worthy came out of carolina as the number one pick the mvp of the ncaa tournament in new orleans he wore converse we saw him at new balance when jordan came out in 84 he wore converse we saw him at nike when ewing came out in 85 as the number one pick in the draft he wore Nike in high school and college. We saw him with Adidas. When Johnny Dawkins came out as the national player in 86, he wore Adidas in college. We saw him with Avia. When Iverson came out of Georgetown, he wore Nike in both football and basketball his whole career. We saw him at Reebok. And so when Evan Turner came out as the national player there, we saw him at Lee Ning. And so I could care less what they wear when they're in junior high. The question is when they go pro, what is the best environment where the player can maximize his marketability, and help the company, and has nothing to do with what he wore when he was 13 years old. Yeah. And I think it's the biggest waste of money for the shoe companies mm. to be pouring dollars um, in, into the youth basketball market because a smart player is really not going to care what what he wore early on. He's going to care who's going to do the best job of marketing me on the next level. And today, when the athletes are consumed with building what they call their brands. I don't think there are three players in the NBA that have a brand, personally. Hmm. You know, but all the agents are saying, we're going to build your brand. And, you know, Michael has a brand that's a $3 billion brand. LeBron probably has a brand because he's one of the great players of all time. Curry, I think, who's a very unique player, sort of like the boy next door. No one thought he'd be that good. He's an amazingly entertaining player, and he's a great guy, just Mm -hmm. a really nice person. After that, I'm not sure anyone really has a brand. Right. Um, I think they're marketable. But being marketable and having a brand is like saying, is it Coca-Cola or is it some water that you get out of a machine? Like, you don't know what it's called, but it's water. It tastes great. It quenches your thirst, but it's not a brand. They're a team of thinkers, seekers, and designers with a focus and inspiration in movement. You know, the times we transport, explore, and surprise. Away travel creates special objects that are at home and on the road. They carry us forward, make our trip easier, and in a small way, our life better. They make the perfect luggage. They're resilient, resourceful, and essential to the way that I travel. And here's more detail. Away travel uses high-quality materials while offering a much lower price compared to other brands. They have four sizes, the carry-on, the bigger carry-on, the medium, or the large. All of their suitcases are made with premium German polycarbonate, unrivaled in strength, impact, and resistance. The interior features a patent-pending compression system, which are helpful for overpackers like myself. It's all TSA-approved, combination lock built into the top of the bag to prevent any theft. 
There's a removable washable laundry bag that keeps dirty clothes separate from clean. I especially enjoy this part. As most of my travel consists of working out, dirty clothes I'd like to keep separate from the clothes that I go out to dinner in or potentially out after games in. There's a 100-day trial. Live with it, vibe with it, travel with it, Instagram it. If at any point you decide it's not for you, return it for a full refund and there's no questions asked. And lastly, there's free shipping on any away order within the lower 48 states. So here's our special student up podcast offer. For $20 off a suitcase, you can visit awaytravel.com forward slash Rabel and use promo code Rabel during checkout. That's again, $20 off your suitcase at awaytravel.com forward slash R-A-B-I-L. Join me and my 100 plus travel days on the road per year with the perfect luggage to get around. So, so what would you try to be really poignant around identifying in, in, in Michael's case, in LeBron's case, in Steph's case, what differentiates them as the brand versus just marketable like a Kevin Durant? Great or, question. Yeah. So I think, that, I think that what I always try to do with Michael, oh, I'll give you the best case book, was Michael and Patrick came out back to back, 84 and 85. They're both in the same class. Michael came out as a junior. We advised Patrick to go back to school for a senior year, and he made the largest contract as a senior in the history of the NBA, veteran or rookie. He made 55% more than the highest paid veteran had ever made in the history of the league, and 300% more than the highest rookie, which I think justified going back to school. Yeah. <laughs> Today, you tell the kid to go back to school, they look at you like, I got to start the clock, I got to start the weight right. scale ticking, which I think is a whole other discussion. So when I went to Nike, on Patrick's behalf, my guy Rob Strasser said, okay, big time, let me guess, Air Ewing. Yeah. And I, I, don't, I can't repeat the words I used, but I said, like, <laughs> no, you dumb blank. Like, Michael's the Air Force. Patrick is the infantry. We're going to call Patrick's line the Force. Mm-hmm. That was the name I'd come up with. And we ended up signing Patrick with Adidas. And Nike used, came out three or four years later with two lines called Flight and Force in recognition of the fact that certain guys were flyers and certain guys were infantry guys. And Adidas, unfortunately, the very reason Michael couldn't go with them, wasn't really organized at that point mm-hmm. to really market Patrick. And, you know, after a few years, they bought out of the contract. And Patrick, we created Patrick's own company called Ewing Athletic mm-hmm. that did phenomenally well. And it's still, we brought it back about five years ago, and it's still selling. Mm-hmm. So, th- so the the way that Steph now will use his, him as an example has married up with Under Armour and have created a shoe. Um, where, if, if you were to kind of advise on the business from Under Armour's perspective or even from Steph's perspective, how do they get the Steph Curry shoe that, that it, we, we think he has a, a big brand here at this table to a place where, you know, the expected royalty on, on Jordan's first shoe was $3 million over the three-year term that you signed. You guys did $130 million in the first year. So there's actual strategic behind that brand building and that shoe, whether it's uh, distribution to how it's going to be marketed. Now, the, the time in, in 1985, all linear media marketing, now you have social. What, what would you say is, uh, got that shoe to... Michael's shoe, and then maybe, maybe we can back our way into how Steph and Under Armour can, can take a bigger market share of, of footwear. Well, the one thing I'd say, the first thing I'd say is, you know, after Michael, we, 
We never thought there'd be another Michael. So we didn't try to take any other superstar clients, whether it's Dominique Wilkins, John Stockton, nobody, and try to be like the next Michael. What made Michael Michael was we always marketed him as a person genuine to his image. We didn't try to turn him into something that he wasn't. He was always Michael Jordan. Even in Space Jam, he was exactly. Michael Jordan. <laughs> exactly. And, that, and there was, that wasn't a coincidence. Like We had, literally hun- that, we had hundreds of marketing offers for Michael to be in movies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we turned them all down. And one day he said to me, like, why don't you want me to be in a movie? And I said, look, with all due respect, you know, you're an amazing basketball player and you're great in commercials, but you can't act. There's only one role you could play. And he goes, what's that? Like the first black James Bond? I said, no, Michael Jordan. And so I got a little bit annoyed at me because he's he's so talented. He could probably do whatever he wants. Sure. I didn't think I didn't want to lose his credibility. He worked so hard by being genuine to try to do something that that might not come across being. And so Space Jam which I created with my friend Ken Ross, um, he played Michael Jordan. Yeah. You know, LeBron comes along, and I'm a big LeBron fan. Yeah. If I were LeBron's advisor, LeBron could do any – he was terrific as whatever the movie um, – Yeah, what was that movie? Trainwreck. Trainwreck, yeah, yeah. yeah, he was terrific. You know, and the last movie I'd pick after I went through a thousand ideas was Space Jam because I'd want to do something where he's not being compared to Michael again where he's doing something that's him. Like, we never let Michael be in commercials with other athletes except, you know, in a handful of occasions. He did one with Muhammad Ali for Chevy, and he did the famous one with Barkley and, and Larry Bird from McDonald's. But I always wanted to be by himself, and I wanted him to do stuff that was first-generation Jordan. McDonald's commercials were so um, good. I think Curry is a really different profile in the NBA. I mean, let's face it, he came out, a lot of people questioned whether he was strong enough, fast enough, you know, to be a, you know, to be a good player in the NBA. No one thought, no one... You know, his agent, I hired his agent, Jeff Austin, mm-hmm. who I really like and respect. Um, we had represented his sister, Tracy Austin, and his brother, John Austin. And Jeff is a lot like me. He's like an old school guy. He's really honest. I, I really admire him. And I, I've told him many times in my iteration today, I'm sort of jealous because I don't have any Steph Currys anymore. Yeah. Um, and I think the world of Jeff Austin. And, um, you know, we talk from time to time just philosophically, you know, about marketing and i think curry is like the boy next door yeah you know absolutely he's almost like a walter mitty it's like like a lot of people think wow i'm a lot more like steph curry he doesn't jump over the basket he's not lightning quick you know he's just amazingly skilled and entertaining and he's humble Mm -hmm. that's what i like the most about him he's humble uh he comes from a great family Mm -hmm. um and i think i think under armor is like today's nike you know, Under Armour is a really popular brand with young people. Um, they've been amazing on the apparel side. The shoe thing is a little bit of a challenge. Yep. Their market share compared to Nike's is small, sort of like what Nike was compared to Adidas and mm-hmm. Converse in the 80s. Um, and I think that the real future for Under Armour is outside the United States. Yes. It's establishing curry in China, India, where 35% of the world's population lives. Mm. Um he, he could become amazing over there. And the fact that the Warriors are a West Coast team, perennial champs, really leads to the international opportunity. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. And I think about how big Curry is. And, and I know him. I've, I've uh, got a chance to spend some time with him at his Player Tech Summit that he hosts with uh, Andre Iguodala. And, and that personality even could be shared more. And, and it makes me think about, you know, how you were able to, to convince Nike after the after uh, the royalties with Jordan were just 
so abundant that they wanted basically Michael Jordan exclusive. And, and you offer them that chance. Here, here's 10, we need 10 million bucks and we won't sign with other companies. They said no. And then boom, Coca-Cola, Chevy, Gatorade, McDonald's, Ballpark, Frank Wilson, <laughs> Wheaties, Hanes, MCI, his own fragrance. And then we talked about the Space Jam and, and I'm sure there have been more. Uh, but, but I would say the, you know, the, the conversation you had with, with Michael's folks around you know, f- doing a full-service deal with Nike, but then getting all these non-endemics to also contribute from a marketing standpoint, that really, you know, the, in, their, in their marketing spend, that really helped tell a, a more um, dynamic story about who Michael was. Well, it's uh, an interesting balance because, if, you know, I had this conversation numerous times with Phil Knight. You know, if I'm Phil Knight shoes, I don't want Michael doing anything but Nike because I want to totally control his image. If you're David Falk, you don't want to only be with Nike because then you come yeah. up for your next negotiation and you have no leverage because they own them. And so my job as his brand manager was to try to find the right balance between how many deals creates dilution, do the deals fit. And the problem, you know, one of my great frustrations is if I was smart enough to know in 1984 that we'd end up with 10 deals, 10 major corporate deals you'd weave them all together at the beginning and say, what fits? You know, for example, Gatorade and McDonald's didn't fit as well as Coke and McDonald's because Coke is the number one customer of McDonald's worldwide. Mm -hmm. But Coke didn't really do a great job differentiating Michael from a lot of other celebrities they had at the time, Um, uh, whether it was Elton John. I mean, there's a lot of different people they had. and so we, we moved him. At Gatorade, he was the only athlete. Like Unlike today when you have Russell and Durant and sure. Paul George, he was the only athlete they had worldwide. And the very first commercial, which they never showed, they made a commercial where a guy in what was then called Yugoslavia, now it would probably be Croatia, writes a fan letter to Michael and he addresses it, Michael Jordan, USA. That's it. And the letter got there, which is pretty cool hmm. if you think about That's it. That's really cool. Um, <laughs> but he was the only guy they had. Today, it's a totally it's a totally different environment. But everything we did, if I had known, we tried to integrate it as best we could. So we would sell Michael's videos that he did for CBS Fox, Come Fly With Me, on the Wheaties boxes, on oh, the yeah, side I panels. Have those VHS we, we would cross-market all the things. We, we had annual meetings for all his companies, we had a Jordan Summit in Santa Barbara or in um, uh, Dana Point in Laguna, yep. Laguna Beach. And we'd spend three days Just ideating talking. how to cross-market and integrate the deal. So we were basically saying the same message. Um, you didn't want these brands competing against each other for Michael's bandwidth, and, and you'd rather them work together and leverage assets. We well, wanted to make sure that the that the image they were projecting of who he was was similar, mm-hmm. not necessarily identical, but similar. And you, you know, guys had all approval. Like on to that, give I'm you sure. a contrast, like Shaq, who I'm a I'm a huge Shaq fan. Yeah. I love Shaq. Shaq's rookie year, he did Pepsi, and he did Reebok. In the Reebok deal, he sort of played the Terminator, this like gargantuan right. giant. And in Pepsi, he did a reprise of the famous Joe Green Coke commercial where he hands the young kid the jersey, like playing the gentle giant. Now, I think if you're Shaq's manager, and he changed managers, mm-hmm. Perry, Perry Rogers, a good friend of mine, does it now, you, you want to have one image. You either want to be the gentle giant or you want to be the Terminator. Those are both great vehicles for Shaq, but you can't be both because they're polar opposites. Mm-hmm. And if you're an eight-year-old kid and you want to know who is Shaq, you want to know he's either A or Z. Yeah. And um, 
I never wanted to be that way with Michael. I wanted to be a, have a consistent image of a guy who was spectacular on the court and very believable off the court. And he, and he was an as, the aspirational brand, the aspirational brand, and still is. Uh, we talked about conceptualizing Air Jordan, and, and we were just speaking about Gatorade and that be like Mike. That, that that kind of like humanized him. And, and I thought that was, I've always thought that was so brilliant. You had all these non-endemics and the requirements. We call like, them tools of the trade. Tools of the trade. How, how, did, how did you convince, if you even needed to, Michael to you know, schedule out time for fulfillment? Or was he just so powerful later on in his career where you guys were like, hey, two or three appearances, that's all you're getting? Well, first of all, um, at the beginning, and this I know this sounds almost unbelievable to say this in 2017 but when we went to mcdonald's and we had a lot of big clients we had jimmy Cos at mcdonald's and gabriella sabatini and tennis at mcdonald's they turned us down flat and they said david are you serious how can we market an african-american team sport athlete and i said gosh like what do you mean when i'm at mcdonald's i see a lot of african-american people in the store it's very popular arthur ash tells me that african-american people eat too much mcdonald's it's very high in fat it leads to high blood pressure and we basically had a bar of favor to get mcdonald's to sign him locally his first mcdonald's deal was twenty-five thousand in chicago in chicago and twenty-five thousand north carolina hmm. that was it and when it came up after two years the woman who ran the north carolina cooperative for mcdonald's didn't said she didn't want to renew it because she couldn't figure out how to use Michael Jordan, who grew up in Wilmington, North Carolina, in, in North Carolina as the Rookie of the Year and All Star. That's how that's how difficult it was. Um, we basically leaned on favors to start it. Now, once it got started, and he automatically, you know, just from day one became a superstar. Obviously, it became easier, but we were very conscious of the time commitment of taking the marketing appearances and as time went by we'd give the companies maybe two to four hours a day very very limited time two years ago i brought michael a deal for a hundred million dollars with one appearance in 10 years for two hours he turned me down didn't want to <laughs> didn't want to do the deal and i admire him for that because he's he has the luxury of choosing whatever he wants to do mm -hmm. i mean he's been so successful both as owner of the of the of the Hornets and in Brand Jordan, which is a three billion dollar brand, um, that he can, you know, he's not beholden to any deal. He could do whatever he wants. Did you guys have any specific ritual or favorite place to celebrate after you inked a new deal and partnerships were coming through? You know, as as he got older, Michael's like such a practical joker. Um, <laughs> the few times we celebrated, he would all, he'd, we'd be in a restaurant. He'd ask the waitress, "What's the most expensive wine on the menu?" David, are you paying this? <laughs> you try to get a Margot or something really expensive, and and stick me with the bill. And, <laughs> and you know, there aren't enough words in the English language for me to thank Michael for sticking with me his whole career. I mean, he he could have had anybody. He could have had a big Hollywood firm, a big management firm. He could have had, you know, an accounting firm. He could have anybody yeah. represent him, and you know. He stuck with me from going from ProServe to Fame, from Fame to SFX, mm -hmm. SFX to Clear Channel, and you know he's just he's been an amazing friend. Yeah, well, I suspect that he figured out pretty quickly your strategic value proposition, the creative side, and, and helping build the, the the branding for the Jordan shoe. But then even your ability to somehow, and I've never quite understood how you guys were able to do this, and and really feels like the the last group to have been able to opt out of a, a league licensing agreement or player licensing agreement like how did that work 
for me, you know, growing up playing NBA Jam and not being able to use Michael Jordan. I know Ken Griffey was able to opt out. Is that right? Frank Thomas and Wayne Gretzky. We don't see it much anymore, though. You know, I, I don't. You know, I've had enough um, compliments to not, you know, beat my own drum. But you know, one of the things I'm most proud of is in the early years when agents could actually make a difference. I think it's very difficult for agents. If you're LeBron's agent and it takes more than 10 seconds to negotiate his deal, you want to choose how many years you want, whether you want a six-month payment schedule or a 12-month payment schedule. Whether you want to... We invented the opt-out for Patrick in 85. We invented the love of the game clause for Jordan in 84. Which Almost, was? Which is the ability of a player to not get permission from the team to play off season. It's mm-hmm. prohibited by paragraph uh, 13... Uh, tw- uh, 12 in the, in the contract 13b is the marketing clause we invented that for darnell valentine it's called the valentine versus portland so mm. in my day i looked at representing these people like worthy jordan ewing as a challenge to me to to think out of the box and push the envelope so there was a group licensing program when michael and patrick came out they were the only two players in nba history to opt out because i didn't want to compete with what we were doing individually in mm-hmm. building their brands with what the league was doing. We didn't want to get diluted. Um, and so the, a million things that we invented, that I invented by necessity because of the challenge of representing these superstars, that today, like, people take all that stuff for granted, but, like, when a player has a player option to opt out, we invented that for Patrick in, in 85. No one ever had that in a contract before. You had a 10-year contract, fully guaranteed, yep. with the right to opt out after six years and, and have it both ways. Um, Lots to probably do with your legal degree that you got because you wanted to, you just had some type of foresight into that being valuable no matter what profession you got into? Well, what, what, what I learned, what I learned my first five years working with, with Donald Dell is that he didn't really have a good feel for the market. The market was exploding at that time, the, the cap came into the league at 82. It was going up 20, 30% a year. So whatever you sign a player for, he would outgrow the contract if he was a good player in a year or two. Mm-hmm. I mean, Donald, the only deal that Donald ever did for Michael was his first contract. He did it totally by himself. I ran basketball. And he, he did, ghosted. And he, he did it by himself. And it was probably the worst contract in the history of basketball. He signed it for seven years with no outs. you know, And hmm. he was underpaid after the first day. You know, and he had to wait four years to redo it, um, and and so I learned that the market was changing so quickly, and so when Patrick came along, you know, we told the Knicks we wanted a ten-year deal for three million dollars a year, when the highest-paid player in history was Jabbar, making two million a year, mm-hmm. and they basically thought I was smoking something. Yeah, <laughs> and and <laughs> I knew I had all the leverage. He was the first ever pick in the lottery, and I told him, look, if you don't feel he's worth it that you'd want a total of 46 games over two years. This is New York. It was owned by Gulf and Western, which is an yep. enormous multinational you know, company. We'll just go back in the draft. And you can explain to the fans in New York why you couldn't afford to sign Patrick Ewing. And so, um, hmm. so they thought it was impossible that the league, that a guy like Olajuwon, who's making 1-1, Patrick's making 3-2, that he'd catch up in five years. So they had no problem giving us and out. Yeah. Um, but I was, you know, I was really proud. Like, you know, the one thing of all the things I've done, done, I've been fortunate to represent like some amazing Hall of Fame players and people who have been amazing friends, supporters, have enabled me to become who I became. 
without their support and loyalty, it never would have happened. And, you know, of all the things, the thing I'm most proud of is if you ask Michael, like, what's the most important thing David did for you? He wouldn't say Air Jordan. He wouldn't say maybe a lot of money. He said he taught me the business. And, you know, that makes me really proud. And I took him when he was 21 years old, and I tried to explain to him why we were doing what we're doing, not what we were doing, yep. but like why we were choosing to integrate all the products under a Nike umbrella, why we were choosing not to do movies, why we were choosing to opt out of the NBA license agreement. It's really important for me to teach him because he's really smart, as is Patrick. You know, we've, we've been blessed to have a lot of very Greg Monroe, Elton Brand. I mean, these are people that are really, really smart people, but they're not experienced in business. And I always looked at my job after a while doing the contracts it was like brushing my teeth i was good at it yeah you know it's like asking michael jordan can you dunk right do you think you think when mike jordan goes to dunk he thinks okay cock your elbow lay yeah. your you no. know it's like it, he goes to dunk you just dunk doing the contracts for me after year, decades became pretty mechanical and now with all the restrictions it's even more mechanical and i always wanted to have a young player like greg monroe when he turned down a 55 million dollar deal by the pistons because he didn't want to stay in detroit and he opted to become, take the risk and become a free agent. I belabored him to understand the risks, what he was doing, why we were doing it. And I probably drove him crazy, but I'd rather err on the side of, you know, I wanted him to learn because yeah. I really respect his intelligence. Quality is important in all aspects of our lives, including our underwear. We deserve underwear that feels good, provides support, doesn't chafe or ride up, especially as an athlete, where I run and lift often. It's a core part of my daily routine. And this is what Saks Underwear is all about. Saks has taken something we all need and has made it better. It's the only men's underwear that's actually designed with our anatomy in mind. And here's a little bit more about Saks. They have super comfortable fabrics that are moisture-wickening and breathable and are matched with a great supportive design with their ballpark pouch. Move around freely in total support with zero friction. Now, here's our special offer for Suiting Up Podcast listeners. You can receive $5 off your order plus free shipping on your first purchase today. To get this great offer, you need to use my promo code. It's Rabel. So go to saxunderwear.com and use promo code Rabel. That's S-A-X-X underwear.com. Use promo code Rabel. So the last thing I'll say then is what's really critical, and it's it's obvious in this office, and I felt it um, from walking in, but, but having a strong moral compass, really important. Absolutely. It's the only, you know, everyone loves to compete, but you got to decide. I had a partner in the day, and who ended up at Octagon, and a situation came up with, with a player who was the number one pick in the draft, um, and they represented the number one and two, number two players. And a situation up with a lawyer for the number two player who died wanted me to testify against my former partner, something that I thought might might have been improper. And you have to draw the line. Like, you know, we were competitors. The things he did I didn't like or respect. But, like, I don't want to stoop to that level. I, I, don't, I don't want to testify against a guy who was my law partner for years. You have to draw the line. Um, and the business is so competitive that very few people are able to draw the line anymore. It's become it's become commonplace to cheat. Like no one looks at cheating like it's cheating. It's 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 the norm. Mm. I mean, I met I met a guy who was the advisor for the number one player last year, 
and he looked me right in the eye and said, Mr. Falk, I know you're the best. The problem is you're not going to pay my guy, are you? I said, I wouldn't pay him a penny. I wouldn't pay a penny to a piece to 30 cents to have the whole first round. I wouldn't pay a penny to anybody because it would take everything I've done with people like Michael and Patrick and John and Coach K and Elton Brand and Jawan Howard and undermine the whole – I feel like I'd, it would ruin my career. Yep. There's not a player alive ever that I'd pay a penny to. And if that makes me a dinosaur, so I'd rather be a dinosaur than, than to feel that, that you've sacrificed your integrity. Yep. Well, really impressive, commendable, obviously, and, and so many lessons for us in business and life to take away from this. Again, really appreciate you sitting down and sharing all that in, in kind of true, honest form, uh, David Falk. Now, I'm not going to tell you, I'm not going to tell you the source of the person, but he'll, if he hears this, he'll know who it is. A very dear friend of mine told me that if you want to get really insightful answers, you have to ask the right questions, and you have. Oh, thank you. Appreciate that. If you enjoyed David Falk and my conversation, please be sure to let me know. I'm active on social media, Twitter, and Instagram, at Paul Rabel. Be the first to listen to next week's episode, as well as catch up on previous episodes, including my one-on-one conversation with Brooklyn Nets basketball players Jeremy Lin and last week's episode, Randy Foy. Their episodes and many more are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, TuneIn, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your pods. Also, please hit subscribe when you find us. Lots of gratitude to send your way for doing so. Shortcut to our show notes at suitinguppodcast.com. And of course, a special shout out to our show's sponsors today, Warby Parker, Away Travel, and Saks Underwear. Use promo code on each sponsor's website, Rabel. They make this podcast go. Thank you for your support. Have a great week, everyone.